millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes. Our YouTube channel, Timeline, has hundreds of world history documentaries on it, but we know that not everyone has the time to watch them all, so now we're turning them into podcasts too. Last week we discovered how the intense feud between Edison and Westinghouse led to the creation of the electric chair. If you missed it, just look back in our feed. This week we're bringing you a documentary on the Queen of England's coronation, the first fully televised coronation, and the drama that took place within the royal family behind closed doors. We begin with part one of this two-parter, focusing on the years leading up to Elizabeth's coronation. The voice of the documentary is actor Ben Kaplan, and it features a variety of experts in the monarchy, ranging from royal correspondents to writers, such as the author of The Windsors, Piers Brendan, and Sarah Bradford, author of Elizabeth, a biography of Her Majesty the Queen. On the 2nd of June, 1953, the 27-year-old Princess Elizabeth became queen in a glittering pageant dating back almost a thousand years. But this holiest of rituals concealed the unholiest of rows in the House of Windsor leading up to the coronation. Successive monarchs had harnessed the coronation to set the tone for their reign. This ceremony was an opportunity to showcase a thoroughly modern monarchy. Prince Philip was all in favor of a fresh and dynamic style for a new reign but he was met with a wall of resistance. There were these sort of forces of tradition, much, much older people, they reigned up against him. Every time he tried to do something, he was slapped down by the old guard of the, the courtiers, even by uh, Queen Mary, who described him on one famous occasion as that damned fool Edinburgh. Unfortunately for Philip, the traditionalists included his new mother-in-law, who was determined that her daughter's reign would be a seamless continuation of her own. The Queen Mother was very protective of her dynasty, and nothing and no one was going to get in the way of that. The scene was set for conflict. In the build-up to the coronation, the two opposing sides, the old and the new, would clash repeatedly. The Queen was caught in the middle. This is London. It is, with the greatest sorrow, that the King who... On February the 6th, 1952, the BBC announced that King George VI had passed away peacefully in his sleep early that morning. King George VI's premature death at the age of 56 was not only a dreadful loss for his family, 
For them, it marked a traumatic change in their roles and status. BBC offers profound sympathy to Her Majesty the Queen and the royal family. Elizabeth, aged only 25, was catapulted prematurely onto the throne. Her coronation would not only sanctify her role as monarch, it was to symbolize a new era in British history. There was a lot made of the prospect that this was going to be the beginning of a new Elizabethan age. Churchill made the point himself, and he referred back to the, 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 the genius of the Tudors and hoped that it was going to occur again. The coronation was to be the perfect tonic for post-war austerity. It showed that a victorious nation had recovered from the Second World War, that peace and prosperity had returned. It also seemed to show that British power was intact. It was a pageant of empire. The stakes were high, and with so many expectations riding on the coronation, 16 months were given to plan and rehearse this event. But to choreograph the royal family's new roles would be an even more demanding task. And the Queen Mother and Prince Philip found they were moving to very different rhythms. He was seen to be a new Prince Albert, a consort for the jet age. The way that he presented himself as a man of science, technology, industry, the future, was part of his own attempt to be taken seriously and to be absolutely at the forefront of how the monarchy was seen. But the Queen Mother saw no need for change and for Philip's jet-age dynamism. She was very much a matriarch. She was determined that what she and her late husband had begun was going to continue throughout the 20th century and beyond. And that was a monarchy of tradition, stability, continuity, and probity. The Queen Mother saw her daughter's coronation as a chance to celebrate this. Who organized the coronation and the way that the coronation was organized was all about maintaining tradition, to present an idea of seamless continuity over the centuries. And the main purpose was to get it as close as possible to the coronation of George VI. The Queen's father's coronation had been a deeply traditional display of majesty and archaic ritual. It boosted the confidence of the monarchy, badly shaken after Edward VIII had abandoned his throne to marry Wallace Simpson. The Queen Mother joined wholeheartedly in the effort to restore stability to the crown. They were much better qualified than they realized because they had this very good, stable family relationship. And I think also that the British public preferred the kind of um, Sunday lunch, afternoon tea, walk in the park image that the royal family projected to the rather sort of brittle cocktail shaker world of the King Edward VIII and um, Mrs. Simpson. She was charming, she was outgoing, she knew how to talk to people in a very relaxed kind of way. She was a commoner, but she had the magic touch. And people tended to fall in love with her, and I think she did an enormous amount to create the matriarchy which her daughter inherited. She was determined to safeguard the carefully managed image of the royal family that she had projected. On becoming queen, she had turned to London's top society couturier, Norman Hartnell, to rebrand her. And he created her signature look, exuberant layers of crinoline. 
The new look went on test on a state visit to the style capital of the world, Paris, in July 1938. Unfortunately, three weeks before the, the state visit was to take place, and it was the first state visit of their reign, uh, her mother died. Well, that normally meant court mourning for six months. Well, she couldn't really go to that great fashionable city in black, but um, Queen Mary had actually often worn white in widowhood, and white is also a colour of mourning, and so they interpreted that. And so um, Hartnell then ran her up this fantastic white wardrobe. Queen Elizabeth left London in black and emerged in Paris in white and dazzled them all like mad. Hartnell's designs made the Queen Mother a fashion sensation, the Jackie Kennedy of her day. But the new royal chemistry really began to fizz when the Queen Mother met the infamously gay photographer, Cecil Beaton. Cecil Beaton was summoned to Buckingham Palace to photograph Queen Elizabeth, and out came more versions of this white wardrobe. And of course, between the two of them, they created, in a way, this, this new image. What better hands could she have fallen into than the hands of Norman Hartnell and Cecil Beaton, both of whom had an immense flair and style. Flanked by these camp generals, the Queen Mother had rebranded the royal image. They had captured that elusive thing, a fairy tale queen with a human face. Now she would call on them to spin their magic for her daughter's coronation, even as she herself, at the age of 51, was forced to stand aside. It must have been upsetting to see all that terrific deference, etc., etc., all the power going to her daughter and herself elbowed into the shadows. Dealing with her new son-in-law's innovative views was also a challenge. He seemed to be somebody who could threaten the stability of the monarchy in the way that uh, King Edward VIII had done. The Queen's husband, with his whiff of modernity and his international family background, was treated with suspicion by the establishment. Who was this young man, Prince Philip? Philip of Greece? Was he a real prince? Where were his parents, for example? His father had died in France during the war. His, his mother was sort of in Greece, but, but, but who were they? His sisters, well, hadn't they all married Germans and weren't some of those Germans Nazis? He was, to many people, a suspect character, the prince from nowhere. He's got Russian ancestry and German ancestry, and he's completely polyglot. He's very royal, but he is in a sense a European. He doesn't really, in a way, come from anywhere. And I think, you know, this sort of sense of being a slightly displaced person, albeit royal, actually explains quite a lot about him. Philip's background didn't help him win the confidence of his mother-in-law. She felt that Philip was, with all these mysterious European connections, he wasn't a sound chap, he was, he was dangerous. I'm not sure he was really her sort of man. If you look at the friend she had, you know, I don't think he really was. Um, and this is perhaps rather a strong thing to say, but she was tremendously anti-German. Philip was perhaps not the Queen Mother's ideal son-in-law, but he had won her daughter's heart. He suddenly found himself at the centre of a great ruling dynasty, and he wasn't the sort of person to take a back seat. I think that he felt that what he'd got was a billet for life, which was something that he had singularly lacked in his youth when he'd been... I mean, he had to wear hand-me-downs from Lord Mountbatten. He had, he, he'd really been very badly off. Now, at last, he had found a wife with all the money in the world, and he expected to benefit from this 
terrific position that he'd now got. At least for the first years of their lives together, it seemed that Philip was able to wear the trousers. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. We've just explored how Prince Philip joined the royal family, and why tension grew between him and the Queen Mother. His career was taking off in the Navy, and in 1949 he was posted to Malta as first lieutenant of the destroyer HMS Chequers. When Prince Philip and the Queen, of course she wasn't, she was Princess Elizabeth then, lived in Malta, the sort of ordinary service life of a naval couple. It was probably the happiest, most normal period of their life. The Queen was terribly happy because, of course, she was then quite only a princess, and she was away from the public glare, and she was shielded by Mountbatten, who was the commander-in-chief locally, um, Uncle Dickie. Um, so it, she became nearest to normal when she was actually in Malta as a naval officer's wife. But this break from royal life was to be short-lived. In July 1951, Philip and Elizabeth were summoned back to London. The king was gravely ill. It was Elizabeth's duty to be by his side, 
and Philip's to be by hers. When six months later the king died, Philip's much-loved naval career was also dealt a deathly blow. He'd always led a very independent private life in the Navy. Uh, he'd been to school here. And uh, I think that suddenly, from being sort of the Queen's husband and playing quite a big role like that, he suddenly realised, you know, that there he was walking two steps behind her sort of thing, you know. He said when the late king died, everything changed. Within weeks, the dusty machinery of state creaked into action to plan the coronation. Reassuringly for the Queen Mother, it was headed by the Duke of Norfolk, the man who had organised her husband's coronation. He was a very conservative man. For him, the coronation was all about maintaining tradition and continuity. And that was how the Duke of Norfolk wanted to keep it. When Philip asked the Archbishop of Canterbury how some features relevant to the world today could be introduced into the ceremony, he was brushed off, and this tyranny of tradition extended beyond the coronation and into every area of royal life. Philip and Elizabeth were even forced into an unwelcome house swap. After George VI's death, it was inevitable that the new royal couple, uh, Queen Elizabeth and, and Philip, would have to move into Buckingham Palace. This was something that Philip didn't want. He didn't want to leave Clarence House, which he'd spent a fortune on redecorating. It was all very nice and suited him. It was a small palace, but it was also like a large London home, and they enjoyed it there. They made a proper home of it. And when the Queen became Queen, Prince Philip's idea was that the family should continue at Clarence House. The official business could be done from Buckingham Palace, but their home would continue to be down the mall at Clarence House. He produced a document setting out the reasons why this is the best way forward. His piece of paper was dismissed. The Queen was obviously influenced by Philip, but in the last resort, she had to do what her official advisers told her. And so, when Churchill said they must move into Buckingham Palace, she had to go along with this. Prince Philip's view counted for nothing. The Prime Minister's view went for everything. There was another problem. Buckingham Palace already had an occupant, the Queen Mother, and she was in no hurry to downshift to the mere four-storey mansion, Clarence House. I know it sounds strange to say it. She thought it was too small. We would now think it was the perfect-sized residence, but, of course, times have moved on. So Philip found himself reluctantly living with his mother-in-law, surrounded by her camp courtiers. I think it was difficult for Philip when they moved into Buckingham Palace because the, the Queen Mother was there, the Queen's sister was there, and he was surrounded by all these women, and he was a, a, a virile man's man of his own, and he didn't... Uh, he didn't... Um, he found this rather... A, I, I, I think he found this rather tiresome. Even the Queen's formidable grandmother, Queen Mary, was still alive and living down the mall at Marlborough House. If this was hard to live with, the leaden pace of life at Buckingham Palace, which had so suited the Queen Mother, was almost intolerable for Philip. When he got there, he found this fusty, old-fashioned setup, and he felt that what was necessary was to modernize the whole place. There were all sorts of people with vested interests in this and people who had to light the candles and people who had got to wear particular uniforms and appear at particular times. It was 
really rather absurd. So he was most impatient with this, and he was most impatient of all with Sir Alan Lassells, the Queen's private secretary, who was the personification of old fashions. And he very much looked down his nose at this brash young naval officer who would come in and try to turn the whole system on its head. If you wanted to send a message to another member of the family in Buckingham Palace, you summoned a footman and you gave him a handwritten note which he put on a salver and he walked half a mile to the other part of the palace and gave it to the other member of the family. Prince Philip said, this is ridiculous. You know, in the Navy, we have walkie-talkies. Why can't we have them in the palace? Well, of course, a certain sort of, um, you know, palace bureaucrat was absolutely appalled at this idea. They'd always used footmen with selfers. You know, how could they possibly do anything else? The courtiers around the Queen, most of them worked for the Queen's father, were very much old-school English public school types. I think Princess Margaret called them the men with moustaches, men who'd fought in the First World War, who'd all been to the same schools, who looked down on Prince Philip as a foreigner and a penniless foreigner. Even if he might have been royalty, he wasn't first-class royalty. Philip escaped the palace walls through a social life mixing with his type of people. He had had quite a colourful life before he was married, and it didn't take him long to resume the rather rackety existence um, that he had adopted as a young, licentious naval officer after Elizabeth and he got married. And certainly when she was preoccupied with her royal duties, he tended to be off in rather, shall we say, unsuitable company. Amongst those deemed unsuitable, was the society photographer Baron Naum. He had photographed the royal wedding and was to become a candidate to take the official coronation portrait. His rival would be the Queen Mother's favourite, Cecil Beaton. While Beaton was notoriously camp, Baron was an infamous philanderer. Well, it was uh, quite often we'd have to go and wake Baron up. Several times I had to sort of go up and shout up the stairs and he'd roll out of bed and there's always some woman there. Prince Philip found him rather... Uh, fun, amusing. Quite often we uh, helped him with his parties. They were always uh, quite fun sort of parties and uh, various interesting friends would be there, pretty girls. And I think Prince Philip found him, as, in a way, a slight escape from the rigours of the palace. It was a testosterone fueled social scene and was populated by bohemian types. Amongst the actors, newspaper editors, artists and authors were David Niven and Peter Ustinov, the spy Kim Philby and the later infamous Stephen Ward. Baron even set up a regular gathering for Philip. They called themselves the Thursday Club. It was a luncheon club dedicated, I suppose, to the idea that weekends for lucky people started on Thursdays and you took Friday off from work, like by Saturday and Sunday, and only started again on Monday. It was full of um, faintly raffish, faintly louche people letting off steam, you know, probably having slightly too much to drink, possibly telling slightly off-colour stories. And when he was with Baron at any of these parties, he uh, would be very relaxed and he'd enjoy company. I don't know what happened afterwards, anything, anything might have done. 
These Soho nights were just a short escape. At home, Philip's efforts at reform were being blocked, even by the one person he might have expected to be an ally. Some marriages work because the people are very similar, some work because the people are very different. The Queen and Prince Philip are very different people. She sided with the old guard. She is a traditionalist. She followed in the footsteps of her father. So there is a tension there. She was the personification herself of duty, of obedience. She knew that this was what she was having to sacrifice her own satisfactions to, 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 to be what she was. And therefore, uh, there was inevitably a, 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 a good deal of friction with her husband. And his position wasn't made any easier by the presence in the palace of the formidable Queen Mother. One of the reasons Philip felt so frustrated by the court was that his mother-in-law was very much a power behind the throne, and she was no modernizer. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for part one of this two-part documentary, so join us again next week for part two. If you can't wait to learn more, you can find this documentary and many others over on our YouTube channel, Timeline. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.